Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming shows. This week's program is on internships. Parents and kids spend a lot of time worrying about getting into college, but as soon as they enroll, their next concern is landing a big internship because it may help in landing a job after graduation. On today's program, I want to focus on three issues. How do kids get an internship? What would be an ideal internship for a particular individual? And what skill building would the intern focus on? I want to discuss the topic of internships from both the young adult as well as the employer's perspective, because having a corporate internship program is very valuable because it can attract young talent for future employment. I had 10 interns this summer for this podcast. They were engaged in all aspects of production, from content creation to social media marketing. You will hear from eight interns today about how they seek internships, develop skills, and how they plan to use their experience in their future work. Internships are a critical part of a young person's development. I thought it would be entertaining to hear about this podcast internship as a case study. Each week, we have a Zoom intern meeting. The first order of business is to review the last podcast to provide constructive criticism, good and bad. Each week, an intern is required to read a book and then to make a case as to whether the author should be on the podcast. Every few weeks, I invite an adult in the room. This is usually a friend of mine who actively listens to the podcast and then participates on the intern call. It's very helpful for the interns to engage with adults, particularly the adult world, and the feedback from my friends is very valuable. I work directly with each intern to improve their editing skills, critical thinking, and oral communication. And the interns teach me stuff as well, particularly all things technology. As you might suspect, everything comes far easier for them. Interns need constant feedback and direction. They don't know what to do or what is wanted, but they love freedom of action. So I try to give the interns choices. What books to read, podcasts to create, and which projects to focus on, like website design or marketing. Many of you listeners have teachable skills that would be very valuable for young people, and I encourage you to reach out and find interns. It's very satisfying to interact with intellectually curious and hungry college and high school students, and they will learn a lot from you. All right, I'm going to start today's session with Ross Perlin, who is the author of the book, Intern Nation. Go ahead, Ross. Every year, millions of young people do internships across the world, a virtual gateway into the world of white-collar work. So in Intern Nation, my book, I set out to understand the origins of internships, and internships fit into a whole pattern of seasonal, part-time, independent contractor, freelance work arrangements that bury the old notion of a stable career and work trajectory where you have a single employer. People have been very slow to recognize the importance of internships. They're very different from apprenticeships. Apprenticeships have thousands of years of history. They are largely concentrated in the trades. And there is a certain amount of regulation around them as well, ensuring that real training is happening, that people are being paid. These are often arranged between employers and unions with an office of apprenticeship as part of the Department of Labor, helping to broker those arrangements, whereas internships have no one paying paying attention to them. There's a legal limbo that interns have fallen into around things like sexual harassment. Are they actually employees? Are they working? But I think just as much attention actually needs to be paid to those who cannot do internships, those who cannot afford a pay-to-play system in fields like media and politics, especially unpaid internships, internships that often turn on connections as well. What does it mean for those fields that many people simply can't do them in the first place? Internships have played a role in the widening equality of the last several decades. Since the work I did with Internation, there has been a real reaction, I think, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which was a cornerstone of New Deal legislation that ended child labor and helped establish the minimum wage and overtime. Many, many unpaid internships, especially at for-profit employers, were actually illegal. This led to lawsuits, most famously around the film Black Swan, to sort of reestablish the principle of a fair wage for a hard day's labor. Some employers have always seen internships as an investment, a sort of key way to source talent. Others have been less scrupulous about it. I don't think what we have is working. Ross, why do you believe that internships are exploitive? if these young adults are seeking out or even begging for these opportunities? 
somebody does work, they should be paid for it. Saying they're getting paid in experience or academic credit, it just doesn't cut it because money is the currency of our society. And it's then also unfair to those who can't pay to play. It's a different discussion when you're talking about paid internships. It's also a different discussion if we're talking about true volunteering at a nonprofit. There's a legal distinction there. The loophole that the whole internship explosion came out of was that the Fair Labor Standards Act had an exemption for a bona fide training situation. You don't need to pay to train someone, obviously, but substantial amount of work is being done that needs to be paid for. Do you have interns that work for you? I don't. At the nonprofit that I am co-director of the Endangered Language, we've never had interns. We do have volunteers. Nonprofits, unlike for-profit companies, can have volunteers. A volunteer is somebody who essentially has control over their own schedule, who is there in a purely voluntary sense, not there because they're looking for some kind of leg up. I understand that there may be a legal difference, but I don't see the ethical distinction between volunteering and internships. Volunteers can put their work on a resume, use it to build relationships, and learn about the adult world too. Does everything have to be viewed as a transactional instead of a mutual assistance? Ross, you're an author, and you manage a not-for-profit. You have a lot of knowledge that would be helpful for young people, but it takes effort. It takes love and thoughtfulness to create a worthwhile internship experience. There are expenses to educate a young person about the adult world. What responsibilities do you and your fellow adults have to train the next generation? Many adults who have taken on interns take their responsibility very seriously as an opportunity to mentor and pass on knowledge and model the world of work and their field for young people. And there's also work shadowing where young people shadow you. And of course, more resource intensive, formalized training that's seen at a larger corporate employer. The question still arises to whether the person is doing actual work. Can one not afford to pay them minimum wage? How many interns can one have at once and still be providing that mentorship? There's just been abuse where people who had literally just started startup companies that started on day one and seeking out unpaid interns on day two. I don't know. My kid would love to work for a startup and see the logistics of what it takes to open a new business. All right, let's change topics to highly sought after internships. Some internships have unlimited demand working at the White House or on a major motion picture or working for Anna Wintour at Vogue, a role that was actually auctioned off for charity. These positions get thousands of applicants for every internship because they're perceived to be very valuable. You have a scarce item. Who gets it and how should society distribute it equitably? In the superstar system, absolute stars that everyone has heard of really is a golden ticket. It's more critical that we create more opportunities that are ordinary but solid. Fields like media and politics, fashion, film, television. Some incredible number of people want to be in the music industry. The workforce will only support having a tiny percentage of all the people who want to get into it. Those hot fields with a relatively small number of actual openings, it has to come from the fields themselves. Having one of those internships go up in an auction is obviously a less just arrangement. Oh, at least the money went to charity. Yes, yes, that's right. But all in all, yeah, it's a less just arrangement than having it be an open application process. Let's use my podcast internship program as a case study. In my introductory remarks, I mentioned that I'm looking for interns and to contact me. I generally accept everyone that asks. Whenever someone applies, they're accepted. Is that to say that- working with me isn't as sought after as Anna Wintour. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is how it usually works. Hi, I'm a listener on your show. My child would love an internship. Great, he's got the job, I say. Look, it's unfair because it's a bunch of privileged kids from wealthy listeners. Now, the program is super informal. It's completely unregulated. The Labor Department will never know about it. Now, there are no legal agreements, no rights, no responsibilities. You can quit at any time. And the kid participates as long as he wants. Is this what you want? individual choice? I think what you're describing is very common. There is a distinction in employment law, labor law, around much smaller employers, which I think make total sense. You're almost the equivalent of the family friend who likes to go fishing, and the mom is calling you and saying, like, can you take junior fishing? Why not? They want to call it an internship because they want to put it on a resume. And then that probably allows you to feel like you can ask a little more of them because it's been given this slightly more formal character. I would rather see it almost go completely back into the informal realm. Do you feel like it all works very well for you? Are you happy with the whole arrangement or can you envision it being improved? 
I take my responsibilities very seriously. I mean, it's an opportunity for a young person to learn some skills. Interns edit the show, decide who the guests are going to be, and what topics we choose. This is a real podcast, and thousands of people listen to it. So the interns take it seriously. My intern, Thomas Treadman, did three internships this summer, and he said he quickly realized that he doesn't want to work for a think tank when he grows up. Now, that's incredibly valuable information. I mean, for example, if you work in a hospital for a couple of weeks before applying to medical school, that could save you time, money, and misery. Yeah, yeah. How about work with Ross for a few weeks to decide if you want to write a book? Mm. Look at the pain and aggravation that Ross has to go through. It's true. No one will want to do it. What kind of fulfillment is that? None. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very true. Uh, some of the qualities of job shadowing, as I mentioned, yeah, the ability to see things you don't want to do, to just get a taste of them still doesn't get at the issue of people who can't afford to even contemplate working unpaid, even for several weeks. Let's say your dream is to direct movies and you've got no skills. And a kid asks a film director to shadow him. And the director says, sure, and I'll give you some tasks to do. And the kid says, can I call it an internship, pretty please? And the kid puts on his resume that he worked for a famous director on a big film and that he made himself useful. Why is that exploitive? It may or may not be if the director says, oh, okay, I've got all these kids coming to me, so let me just fire my production staff and just use these kids. Is that okay? Is that the point where there has to be regulation or there has to be shaming? But again, the more we're talking about just shadowing short term, it's not displacing what would have been regular jobs. Large companies have been shamed about internships, and now it can't be informal anymore. They have to pay and make sure that the hiring process is done fairly. And they invest in a staff to manage the interns, use HR, and sometimes even provide housing. Right. It's a recruitment strategy. This is how companies like Google and Microsoft have been using internships for companies that do have the resources to do it. Those kinds of arrangements have a real logic to them. In the old days, I would have called up a friend at a big firm to get my kid a summer job. Now they've got this rigorous process focused on finding a qualified, diverse intern class. So a quick gig for a few weeks makes little sense. Ross you're an independent contractor. I could call you up, no problem. You'd be like, love to do it. Send Junior over. The ideas of internation, which is to shame big companies into having a reasonable, well-paid internship program, it shuts off these informal assignments from big firms. So now the better option is for kids to go to work for small operations like you and me. I don't know exactly what would be really stopping Goldman Sachs from having a shadowing, bring your daughter to work day, I would like to see a de-escalation of all these things where fishing and lifeguarding are okay again, and it's not that you always have to be getting an internship. Thanks, Ross. I'm going to move on now to Jay Green, who is my high school debate partner and is now a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Center for Education Policy. Jay is the former department chair for education reform at the University of Arkansas. I've asked Jay to speak about inequality at internship programs. Go ahead, Jay. Thank you, Larry, for having me talk about the topic of internships. Parents should be helpful in getting internship opportunities for their own children in the same way that they should be helpful in all respects for their children. A decent society is built on families where parents develop the full potential of their own children. This is the foundation of a decent society because we have experimented with different arrangements for raising children. We've tried collective child raising by the state, and we found that those are not the ideal way to help develop young people into being decent and productive adults. Family bonds built around biological relationships develop human potential and create civilization best. Internship is just one of the many things that parents could do to help develop the potential of their children. Most of the ways parents help their children are not zero-sum. That is, helping their own children doesn't prevent other children from being helped in other families. If children are loved by their parents and hugged by their parents, read to at night by their parents, this does not prevent other children from being hugged and loved and read to. And we should think of internships in the same way as we think about parents loving their children, hugging their children, and reading to their children. After all, if parents don't advocate for the well-being of their own children, no one else will to the same extent. And therefore, a good society is one where all parents are trying their best to advocate in this way. But 
barring engaging in immoral or bad behavior, simply helping your own children is not immoral. Now, there is something puzzling about why it is that this is even a matter of angst among some of your listeners. There was a front page article in the Financial Times a couple weeks ago. An anonymous source informed the FT that Boston Consulting Group was offering its partner's kids an exclusive summer internship in London, where they were given interesting assignments. One young adult described her internship on her LinkedIn page. The source said that this showed unfair nepotism and suggested that this kind of internship program needs to be abandoned. No child has all of the same opportunities that all other children have, right? And so fairness is not offering the same opportunities to all children. Fairness is everyone trying to offer as many opportunities to their own children as they can with an understanding that opportunity and human development is not zero sum. Fully developing your own children by helping arrange for opportunities for them, by teaching them and loving them and feeding them and doing all of the things that parents should do to help develop their children, those things can make all children better off. We shouldn't see this as a zero-sum arrangement. You mentioned the failure of a collective child-rearing methods. What do you mean? If your listeners want to imagine what collective child-raising looks like, it looks more like a Romanian orphanage than an Israeli kibbutz. But even at an Israeli kibbutz, this didn't work out very well because human beings naturally have an affinity towards their own kin that's enduring and strong. We can simply observe that raising children in family units is the norm in human history across time and across place. Jay, you mentored many graduate students. What have you learned from the experience? I've learned some hard lessons about the importance of family mentorship relative to non-family mentorship. I've had a lot of graduate students, and I was the head of a department which had a PhD program that was its centerpiece. I would tell my colleagues that our graduate students were our intellectual children. They were our intellectual legacy that in many years will be gone, our research will be forgotten, but little seeds of our ideas will be the DNA that we implant in these intellectual children who are graduate students. At the time I said it, I believed it was true, but the hard experience is that it turned out not to be true. It's hogwash. They're not actually our children. They're just our students. There's really a fundamentally different relationship between your students or your intern and your children. There's a different relationship between boss and employee than there is between a parent and child. Hillary Clinton says it takes a village to raise a child. By village, she actually means the federal government. She's appropriating the language of family to talk about governmental programs. Mario Cuomo gave a famous convention speech where he said, we're a national family and we need to take care of each other. But we're not really a national family. There is a fundamental difference between my obligations to my own family. And we should recognize this difference in relationship as normal, natural, and good. And that any time we try to appropriate that family metaphor for non-family situations, we are engaged in manipulation. And I must have been guilty of doing that when I tried to motivate my colleagues to work harder to help their students by suggesting that they were their intellectual children. They weren't. They were just students. You could think of families as a series of obligations, commitments, as opposed to transactional exchange. Commitments to each other are not transactional, or at least less explicitly transactional. Jay, what are you optimistic about as it relates to internships? I'm optimistic that families are going to continue to seek these opportunities for their own children whether it's through formal internship opportunities or other informal mentoring arrangements, parents are going to find ways to expose their children to opportunities that will help them develop into productive and decent adults. This is the way of human history. It's always been and it always will be going forward, regardless of 
whatever imaginary worlds we can dream up in our head. Our purpose is to help our children by doing all the things that grown-ups are supposed to do to help their own children. Some are adamant that internships should be paid. This view relates to fairness because poor kids can't afford unpaid internships or that employees shouldn't be able to profit from unpaid work. Do you think that requiring paid internships will increase equity or will it increase the number of internships available to young adults? Obviously, the more you raise the cost of having an intern with either the informal expectation or the formal requirement that interns be paid, the fewer internships there will be and the fewer opportunities there will be, including for poor kids, people who are motivated to advocate for paid internships because they think that this is an equity-promoting policy, it may very well backfire by reducing the total supply of internships, which may disproportionately negatively affect disadvantaged kids who struggle to find internships at all. There's also the problem that kids from more disadvantaged backgrounds may be less productive as interns. And so if you require that they be paid, it's sort of like a minimum wage requirement where the compensation may exceed the possible benefit for that particular worker, making them unemployable in an internship because they simply lack those skills. But if it's unpaid, it might make sense for the employer to take on someone who has very low skills, which is equity promoting. So Ironically, paid internships are probably equity-destroying as opposed to equity-promoting. When I worked at Solomon Brothers as an intern in 1986, I sat right next to senior Solomon professionals and listened to their phone calls with clients using a second phone headset. I engaged with the adult world. It was completely foreign to me. How should we think about exposing kids to the adult world? James Coleman, the famous sociologist, revealed in his book, The Adolescent Society, that the idea of adolescence is a modern invention. It used to be that there were children, and then they quickly transitioned into being apprentice workers in trades. There was no such thing as adolescence. There was simply childhood and then working, adulthood. Because of our higher knowledge-based economy, we have created this longer period of training in formal institutions, essentially a kid factory known as the school. The parents would go off to their adult factory where they worked, and the kids would go off to the kid factory called school. The problem with the adolescent society that we've created by concentrating children in the school factory is that they are not learning adult norms. The opportunity to be in a work environment for a young person can be very helpful because they learn about how adults think about the world and how they handle problems. This is an important social function of internships. It helps children transition into adulthood by exposing them to a higher concentration of adults like they would when Ben Franklin apprenticed in the print shop or when children helped collect the crop. They would be around a lot of other adults, not a lot of other children, and they would then learn adult ways so that they could be adults themselves. Thanks, Jay. We're now going to hear directly from the interns on what happens next. And we will begin with our very first intern, Justin Benjamin, who is a rising sophomore at Yale. Go ahead, Justin. To be frank, Larry, I chose this internship out of boredom. I think it was July of 2020, and my family and I huddled over a computer to tune in to hear what happens next calls every Sunday at 3 p.m. I was curious whether I could help, so I shot you an email asking if you needed an intern. I was looking for some intellectual stimulation during COVID, and little did I know I was kickstarting your internship program and embarking on my favorite work experience. The best part of my podcast internship was the exposure to current events and ideas. I was required to read the latest issues of the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, Foreign Affairs, and various new books that I enjoyed a lot. Larry also taught me to evaluate content critically and determine what was show-worthy. Understanding the most important points made by a speaker and cutting out the fat has become a skill of mine, and I'm so happy that I sent Larry that email two years ago. Justin, how do you know what speaker or subject is worthy of being on the What Happens Next podcast? 
When it came to selecting speakers, I just knew there had to be a novel takeaway. I knew you did not want a simple rehash of ideas from last week's New York Times. You were always looking for a new perspective, something both provocative and entertaining. We had to look for speakers who could communicate their position in a lively and engaging manner. Justin, you sent me an email and got the job. How do you think that success will impact your future job search? When I sent you that email, I think it really spoke to the old saying, there's no harm in trying. The upside of these cold emails has inspired me to look for unorthodox employment opportunities and state clearly why I want that specific job. Justin, have you recommended anyone to be an intern on the What Happens Next podcast? I have made quite a few recommendations for fellow interns. It was obvious that several of my friends would enjoy the intellectual stimulation provided by this internship. I recommended one of my close friends from high school, Teddy Foley, who interned for the program during his gap year. I then recommended a couple of my Yale classmates, Ross Arman and Thomas Chidman, who both joined the intern program and will speak later on this podcast. Justin, what are your suggestions for kids looking for internships? When it comes to looking for internships, I think people often focus too much on resume building and less on the concrete skills they can acquire. I would encourage others to think more holistically about internships and not simply about finding your next job. Justin, how did you find your next internship? I was able to leverage my What Happens Next position to obtain an internship with Josh Agani, who had been a previous guest on the show. I sent him a cold email emphasizing our mutual connection, and I got the job. I worked at his educational finance startup, MiaShare, which specializes in income share agreements with vocational students. And frankly, not all my employment opportunities have been intellectual. I worked over the summer at LeBain Bakery, which taught me a different set of skills. I had to be punctual and ensure that every customer was treated with care and respect. Thanks, Justin. Let's move on to your buddy, Thomas Treadman, who is a classmate of yours at Yale. Go ahead, Thomas. This summer, I've had an interesting experience with internships, mainly because I had three of them. I worked at a think tank, a macro hedge fund consultancy, and of course, this podcast. It was a discombobulated summer. Some days I'd research energy policy for the think tank, stare at the Eurodollar curve for the hedge fund consultancy, and edit a transcript for Larry. And it was often hard to find a rhythm. On some days I had no work. On other days I had a lot of work for all my jobs. But I preferred to be busy than bored, so I played it safe by having three jobs in that respect. One thing I learned across all of them is that the vast majority of interns are somewhat useless, and I'm sure everyone knows that. But still, it's helpful for kids my age who are trying to figure out what they want to do post-college to meet people in the industries they're interested in and to get a taste for what it's like. Thomas, you got three internships this summer. How'd you get those jobs? I got my first job at the Policy Think Tank through an online portal where I submitted a cover letter, application, resume. It was pretty conventional. My next job at the macro consultancy was a bit different. There was a job posting on Twitter and the person in charge asked that we submit a trade idea. I submitted a trade idea for Global Macro and was lucky enough to get the job. For this podcast, my college friend Justin recommended me. Why were you successful at these internships? I offered to do extra work. I stuck my neck out. I made sure people knew I was available. All these things gave me exposure to different projects and interesting work assignments. Often it's hard for full-time employees to use interns because they have their own jobs and they're busy and interns often can't help that much. But still, interacting with coworkers, emailing them, talking with them on the phone, speaking with them at the water cooler... All these things helped me get put on projects they don't think I otherwise would have been able to take part in. Thomas, what skills did you learn? At the Macro Hedge Fund Consultancy, I learned how to use a Bloomberg terminal. I got to look at different markets that didn't even know existed, like futures markets, swaps markets, options markets. I learned things about markets that I don't think I would have otherwise understood by just looking at them in a textbook. Also, it's interesting because Bloomberg is how finance professionals track markets, so getting exposure to it was very helpful in that way. What skills did you learn in your What Happens Next podcast internship? We're lucky to have incredibly talented guests at What Happens Next. Across economics, politics, international relations, foreign affairs, business, finance, just hearing from them and editing their transcripts makes you feel like you're very close to them, and this is a unique experience. But more importantly, at the weekly intern calls, Larry asked that we give feedback on the prior episode, and that we also put forth some ideas for the podcast going forward, whether that's guests to have on or ways to better market the podcast. But then he makes us defend the ideas. He asks us questions. Why is your idea the best idea? I feel like this is great practice, as for many different internships and full-time jobs, junior guys are expected to come to the table with good and innovative ideas and be able to back them up. 
What suggestions would you have for employers who have internship programs? My most formative experiences at these internships have been listening in on meetings. It's not that proactive, but being able to hear from professionals with decades of experience under their belt is really helpful. Often it's a great trade-off. They spend 30 seconds, but I learn more than I would learn by reading or watching videos or calling people for hours. How did some of your peers get internship positions? Many of my peers got their internships through friends and family, and it's often less meritocratic than you would think or even hope. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Applying online is a big risk. The internship can be great or it can be a complete dud. But if you know the person, you can speak up if you're not having a fulfilling time. And you also know that your boss is a quality person that will treat you well and give you a good experience before that person is your boss. So there are definitely some advantages to having an internship with someone that you know beforehand. What are you optimistic about for the future of internships? I think LinkedIn and the internet at large has made it easier on all fronts. I honestly don't know how kids got internships before. Job postings and bulletins, I'm not sure. But LinkedIn exposes kids to new industries, new types of jobs that they probably didn't even know were out there. And from an employer standpoint, it's easier to find talented kids who might not attend a fancy school or have personal connections. So the internet and LinkedIn really benefits everyone. Thanks, Thomas. Our next speaker is the hardest working intern at What Happens Next. Go ahead, Carly Braille. I wanted to become a What Happens Next intern because I was fascinated by economics, loved podcasts, and was simply bored at home. After a few months of online school, my dad, David Braille, who is close friends with Larry, spoke on the GameStop episode. I sent Larry an email expressing my interest, and he called me five minutes later. Next Monday, I was on the intern call. We would meet once a week to go over the previous episode and evaluate new guests. I read two books a week and then decided if the author and their argument should be invited onto the show. Through this internship, I have matured as a thinker, and I credit this experience with preparing me for college. Larry helped me develop and hone my analytical skills, taught me how to think independently, and made me comfortable challenging experts. I'm much more familiar with economics than many other fields and can even press my dad on current events. Larry wrote an external college recommendation letter for me, and I called him 10 minutes after I got to Harvard to thank him. During the 2021-2022 school year, you were my only intern for nine months. There was a lot of responsibility because you had to make some critical decisions. Tell me about it. It was definitely a lot of responsibility. I would call you every Thursday and I would have a pit in my stomach. How different is it now with having more interns? There's a lot more debate. It's not just my opinion, so it's much more collaborative. You had a substantial influence on programming. I remember your first show when you planned the Industrial Labs discussion with speakers on Xerox Park and Bell Labs. What happened? I did not know what I got myself into because I read both those books in the same week and I was like, they would be really good together. And then you took it and ran with it and created a panel and had them both on. It was a big deal. I read John List's book and I loved it and had him on. He was great. He's one of the people on the shortlist to get like the Nobel Prize in economics. And I read his book and I recommended you had him on the show and it was great. Tell us about how you got your internship and what happens next. Yeah, well, I actually went through my emails last night and the email I wrote you, it was missing a period and it was two sentences long. It was nothing. And then you're like, call me. So I called you. You picked up. You were like, hey, Braille. Because that's how you respond to my dad. It was very funny. And it just made me realize that things are more accessible than you realize. Thanks, Carly. Our next speaker is Nick Ragdy, who is a math major and rising sophomore at Georgetown University in Washington. Go ahead, Nick. What happens next was my first internship experience. I'm at the age where summer internships help determine your future career. Some kids have planned out their whole life, with each summer internship progressing in prestige and compensation until they've landed an offer from a boutique firm where they can climb the ladder or jump ship for an even more lucrative opportunity. I have not figured out my career path, so the internship process feels daunting. Seeing other people your age land fancy internships that help their career paths make you feel like you're behind, but these feelings are very self-imposed. I realized this, funnily enough, on one of my macro midterms. Kids I knew who had landed these prestigious internships did not do particularly well, and their scores were distributed arbitrarily along the curve. Very few were near the top. I realized that who gets the best internship was completely arbitrary. Seeing the macroeconomics curve results reduced the pressure of comparing myself with others. It was time for me to go out and find an internship that interests me. Nick, why did you apply to be an intern for this podcast? My parents are pressuring me to do something this summer. The summer after freshman year is when students get serious about doing work. No more busing tables or volunteering. I heard a pitch on one of the episodes to apply for an internship, so I did. I sent an email to you. I attached my resume and wrote a cover letter explaining why I thought I'd be a good match. 
Uh, later that same day, you called me. I didn't pick up because I didn't know who it was. It just had a random number. But you left a voicemail saying, it's your new boss, Larry. Call me back when you can. What'd you expect? I figured that my role would be to read books and write targeted emails for the show. But I realized pretty quickly that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. So I joined the website team with two other kids to improve the aesthetics and make the site look younger and more professional. And that became my big project over the summer. Nick, what skills did you develop from this internship? Learning how to work with others and be a team leader. Working on the website, managing my own work, and delegating to others, I hadn't done that before. And working on the website allowed me to kind of experience that for the first time. How will you pick your next internship? I'm going to look for an internship where I can work with other people my age. Not a structured internship where you follow someone who's been working at a company for a couple of years and they just tell you what to do. I'd hope to find some freedom where I can learn from my own experience instead of just sitting around and passively listening. How would you advise an employer on setting up an internship program? Letting interns meaningly contribute is really important. All the interns at What Happens Next can see the final product after each episode and see what they contributed to it. So it's really there for them to see. What advice would you give your peers about internships? If someone has figured out a career path, kudos to them. It's good to know what you want to do at such a young age. But for the rest of us that haven't, it's not the end of the world to not know yet. Thanks, Nick. Our next speaker is Dylan Partner, who is also a rising sophomore at Georgetown University. Go ahead, Dylan. Working for the podcast has given me the opportunity to hone my skills in research, editing, social media, and marketing. I dive right into subject areas that I'm passionate about. I made a Greatest Hits compilation episode on academic freedom from fabulous content from the What Happens Next archives, as well as an interview with former Georgetown professor Ilya Shapiro that was new content for the episode. I read a book every week for the podcast to evaluate whether the authors should be guests on future episodes. I had a great deal of freedom to choose the path that I wanted to take. You'd think that podcasting is an idiosyncratic field, but in reality, the skills you learn from podcasting are quite broadly applicable. What advice would you have for structuring an internship program? You should consider the incoming intern's interest areas, passions, pre-existing skills, so that you can ensure that this intern is productive and engaged. Dylan, what advice would you give a peer on choosing an internship? Every year, it's getting more and more competitive to find good internships. It's a struggle, but I think that this internship showed me that you don't have to work for some renowned law firm or on Capitol Hill to get experience. It can be in any work environment, including a podcast, as long as the people there are passionate, experienced, and willing to collaborate. A good internship has less to do with the setting than with the quality of its interns and supervisors. Thanks, Dylan. Our next speaker is Ryan Claffey, who is starting a master's degree program in international relations at Columbia University in New York. Ryan, go ahead. On day one of What Happens Next, Larry informed me that editing is, first and foremost, the process of turning shit into gold. As a summer intern, I learned firsthand the painstaking process of converting over two hours of recorded content into a 20-minute segment. I got full discretion to determine what was show-worthy. A great leader trusts his team, and Larry always upheld that oh-so-sacred covenant. I had the confidence to take initiative and launch our podcast on various social media platforms like LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. I chose the video and edited two minutes of each speaker's content to be shared across all media platforms. I'll most likely be reviewing and editing these very remarks. During my first intern call with Larry, he immediately labeled me the show's China czar. I was tasked with reading and listening to all things China. That's my primary focus. Ryan, how do you like being the China czar? I thought it was great fun. I mean, I'm passionate about it. I'm a Columbia SEPA student after all. And the very future of global relations depends on the ongoing China-U.S. relationship. Ryan, you were tasked with making a special podcast episode on a possible invasion of Taiwan by China. What is your plan for that podcast? The invasion of Taiwan is the most important issue in the world today. The What Happens Next archive has several important speakers on China, such as Admiral Jim Stavridis, National Security College historian Rory Medcalf, Navy War College historian James Holmes, and Dan Markey of the U.S. Institute of Peace, who focused their presentations on a potential Taiwan invasion. I've called the most relevant information for the episode. But we needed fresh material to converse with these past insights, 
And I selected Richard Fontaine from the Center for a New American Security, who recently led a war game over the fight for Taiwan with congressmen and former defense officials. I think this will be a fantastic program. Ryan, your dad, Kieran, is an active listener. What is it like to have a consumer of your podcast living in the same house? (laughs) Oh, I absolutely love it. I get feedback instantaneously. There's a no-holds-barred policy. He tells it to me like it is. If there's a segment we could have done better, he'll let me know. Pops loved the Top Gun Maverick discussion, especially when callsign Planter described his experience flying jets. He'll chew my ear off about it and how much he loved that program. It brings us closer together. It's great to have somebody who listens to what we're doing, gives great feedback, and genuinely loves the show. Shout out to Kieran Claffey. Ryan, what are you optimistic about as it relates to the future of internships? I'm very excited about the next wave of interns who will hopefully pick up the mantle of using social media to spread our podcast content all over the internet. I've had my friends listen to the show during a road trip, and they love it. I'm optimistic that we can keep getting more listeners and share great content with everyone. Thanks, Ryan. Our next speaker is Griffith Poole, who is a rising senior at the University of Illinois Urbana. Griffith, how did you get your internship on this podcast? I wasn't getting any responses back from any other places I had applied for an internship. I think COVID has a lot to do with that. My sister told me that her boyfriend knew someone who was looking for interns for a podcast. I've been DJing at my college's radio station for three years, and my minor is in critical film production, so I've done some sound editing for shorts and exercises. What tasks for the podcast interest you the most? Uh, well, you're always making sure that we're working on some aspect of the podcast. For example, some other interns complained about the lack of music, so you got me in contact with a musician, and now we're working on getting music for the show. I thought we should be making advertisements for Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so you tasked me with writing ads out of some juicy sound clips. Thanks, Griffith. Let's move to Dora Wedner, who is previously an intern with What Happens Next and is now working at Kendall Jenner's 818 Tequila Company with my good friend Mike Novi. Go ahead, Dora. Hi, Larry. I'm so excited to be on the podcast. My name is Dora Wedner. I graduated from Harvard in 2019, and I took my first job with the U.S. Department of State in D.C. I'd had some reservations about taking the job beforehand, but I I took it and I realized, you know, the lifestyle really isn't the one that I want to commit myself to at this point in my life. I ended up leaving the State Department mid-pandemic and pivoted to applying for a master's in fine art at the New School in Fiction Writing. I got in and I was all set to enroll and start in New York City in fall 2021. In the meantime, my dad, Marcus, is a friend of Larry's and they were hanging out down in Miami in the winter and Larry was telling my dad about the podcast and that he needed interns who could read. And my dad said, well, you know, my daughter reads all the time. So given that that was the only criterion, I was hired on the spot. But one of the benefits of this internship was that it was so flexible and it allowed me to follow a lot of disparate interests. So I was able to read up on China and Russia and the science of aging and psychology. And it really allowed me to expand my viewpoint beyond just foreign policy and fine arts. At one point, Larry asked me to edit the audio of an interview, which I'd never really done before. I was a little bit familiar with GarageBand, but not anything serious. I ended up learning how to use the technology and really enjoyed editing audio for Larry under a tight deadline, something that I had never anticipated. And my takeaway from that was that I can do anything and I can do things that I wouldn't have seen myself doing before. That's a great segue to my current job. So I'd love to tell the story. I currently work with 818 Tequila and the way I got the job was directly thanks to this podcast. So here's what happened. Larry was doing a podcast on the alcohol industry with a panel of industry leaders and Mike Novi, who had been the president of Casa Dragones and was a buddy of Larry's, had just taken over as president of 818 Tequila when he was set to come on the show. So I was extremely excited that Mike was coming on because I knew that the brand was launching. I had seen it on social media. I really admired Kendall Jenner, who is the founder of it, and I love tequila. So in all aspects, I was very, very excited. So Larry offered the interns the opportunity to join the prep call. And once I was on the call, you know, I sort of previewed to Mike how excited I was about the brand launching. And Mike would love to talk to me because I was sort of their core demographic already. And he wanted to just pick my brain on what about the brand really drew me in. 
So Mike and I ended up chatting for about 30 minutes. And at the end of the call, he said, you know, I'll send you some 818 once we launch. And I said, you know what? I don't need any tequila, but I would love to work for you. And he was like, you know what? We're a small team and we would love to have you come on board. We'll have you focus on international expansion since that's kind of where your expertise lies. And I was like, oh my God, this is an incredible opportunity. The idea that I would have abandoned my career in the State Department, the idea that I would have ended up not doing my MFA and that I would be working in the liquor industry was just totally inconceivable to me. I never considered it before. It wasn't even within the realm of possibility. If you would spread out a tableau of careers and ask me to pick one, I don't think that the liquor industry would have even been on the table. So that was how far outside of my own imagination it was. I ended up starting with 818 just two weeks after it launched in June, 2021. And today I work on marketing and sales. And I also help with our international market launches. I was in Toronto earlier this summer by myself opening up the market there, which was fantastic. In general, the job is fantastic. You know, I, I love it so much. I love working with Mike, who is so invested in every one of his employees and in us learning and seeing how the business works, go to market strategies and all those amazing things. My own boss used to work at Anheuser-Busch and has an incredible wealth of knowledge in the liquor industry about marketing. And it's just been a real joy to continue learning in this industry that I never would have previously considered. I'm a very type A person and I thought I had my life all figured out. I had applied for the State Department when I was a freshman in college. That was my life for four to five years. That was part of my identity. To leave that was a pretty big undertaking. And then, you know, in the interim, I was like, oh, I really like to write. I was writing a 200-page novel. I'm going to be a fiction writer. But through the internship and through Larry's guidance and working with the team, it became very clear to me that I work best with other people. I like to be constantly busy. I'm not a super solitary person. I'm very extroverted. And I like to feel the fulfillment that a team creates. Larry's internship also added the factor of lower stakes. So it's a much safer environment to take risks. You're able to succeed in ways that you hadn't even anticipated. As somebody who is used to doing things that are familiar to them, that they're good at, It's also really instructive that you can take a risk and potentially succeed at something that you never previously considered. That was my biggest takeaway from Larry's podcast is that if you take a risk, you might end up doing something that you truly, truly love. So thank you, Larry. I really, I owe you and the podcast quite a bit. Our next speaker is Ross Armand, who is a rising sophomore at Yale. Take it away, Ross. During the last few years, I often felt burnt out because of stress of homework and extracurriculars all while trying to figure out exactly what I want to do with my life. And I don't mean to sound cliche, but I lost the passion for learning. And this internship has really let me rediscover my own intellectual curiosity. And for that, I want to say thank you. Each week, I read at least one book of my choosing to determine whether or not the author should be on the show. One book, The Language of Cities by Dan Sedgwick, sparked my interest in urban studies. I produced my own Greatest Hits episode on urban planning, where I combined segments from previous episodes to create a dialogue between different speakers. I got to hear from economists, sociologists, museum curators, and professors about the challenges to using public spaces, how they change over time, and what can be done to make the next iteration of the city more affordable and enjoyable for everyone. This internship taught me how to be an independent thinker, how to ask probing questions, how to be a leader, not just in a work environment, but a life. It's been an incredible and meaningful experience, and I honestly cannot recommend it enough. Tell us about how you structured your greatest hits episode on urban economics for the podcast. Yeah, you really get to own one specific topic and you dive deep into the archives. I learned stuff that I'd never really thought about. It's really challenging to splice together different speakers because you're listening to a podcast and it's telling you a story, a narrative about the subject. It requires a lot of creativity and it was a lot of fun. I empowered you to make your own podcast. What happened? I mean, it's huge. You take ownership and responsibility for a product that you make. I feel like these well-respected internships that some of my friends have, they're not actually doing anything most of the time. They might be helping someone with a bigger project, but at the end of the day, there's no personal responsibility for anything. There was one week at the podcast where I was literally responsible for the episode from start to finish. You get to take ownership, and I think that's unique and really valuable. If you were advising another young person about how to choose an internship, what advice would you give them? My biggest piece of advice would be to make sure you feel like you're doing something that matters. And what matters is up to you. If you're just filling out spreadsheets, you're not really learning anything. You can put a fancy line on your resume, but it doesn't make a difference. What advice would you give to someone charged with managing a corporate internship program? 
Yeah, having constant communication with your boss is critical. You call me four or five times a day and we just spend an hour talk about what the plan for the podcast was for that week. A lot of these internships, you're not actually interacting with higher-ups. There's no real opportunities to find a mentor. And so for someone in your position, just being there to teach the interns how to interact with people, how to manage people is such a valuable skill. How did you enjoy the interaction with adults on the weekly intern call? Yeah, so every few weeks, you would invite an adult to join the intern call to give us a different perspective. I really enjoyed meeting Dora Wedner. She was an intern and got her job because of this podcast. It's inspiring and you learn from them how to best approach this job and you adjust what your goals are. Another example is John Johnson. He was really thought-provoking. He spoke to us about how to be a leader. And most times, interns are not considered to be leaders in any way, shape, or form. But I hope to be a leader someday, and I found the topic to be really useful, both for right now and in future jobs. Ross, what are you optimistic about as it relates to internships? I have no idea. I'm optimistic that I gained a lot from this internship, and it's going to help me achieve things that I want to do in the future. And I'm optimistic that you will find more of Justin's friends and my friends to fill our shoes. So that's what I'm optimistic about. Thanks to Ross Pearl and Jay Green and the What Happens Next interns for joining us today. And that ends today's session. If you missed last week's podcast, check it out. The topic was, you can't teach that. It was about the growing trend to censor some of the classics in the American literary canon in high school and college English classes. Our speaker was John Ellish, former graduate dean at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the author of The Breakdown of Higher Education. This was a greatest hits episode where we raided the What Happens Next archives for discussions with Brown Literature Professor Arnold Weinstein about Huck Finn. Penn Sociology Professor David Grazian about Bonfire of the Vanities, and Emory History Professor Patrick Allett on 1984. I'd like to make a plug for next week's show. There will be two provocative topics. The first is whether we should abolish the FBI. Our speaker is the famous criminal defense lawyer Harvey Silverglate, who is the author of Three Felonies a Day. He will make the case that the FBI was corrupt at its founding and needs to be torn down and reestablished. Our second topic is about men who don't work. Our speaker is AEI Nicholas Eberstadt, who is the author of the book Men Without Work, and his second edition is coming out this September 19th. He will discuss why so many men voluntarily decide not to be employed. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextinsixminutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our free weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you have a long list of friends, send the list to me and I'll enter the names for you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I would love for you to listen to more of them. All you need to do is subscribe. So take a moment to do so on the website or follow What Happens Next on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'd like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.